True Multifamily is an On Air Brands production and a proud member of the On Air Brands Network. Hey, True Multifamily listeners, I want to let you know that this podcast unfortunately had some audio issues, and I totally understand if it's a little bit hard to hear. We did have some challenges getting the audio to work perfectly. However, I do think it's a great episode, and I hope that it's still worth it for you. Give it a listen and uh, leave us a comment. Let us know how you thought we did. We really like this episode. Thanks so much. This is True Multifamily, the show where we dive in on what really happens after closing a multifamily property. We're going to expose the role of asset manager. That's a person who has a responsibility of seeing the vision, executing the plan, and managing people, budgets, and timelines, all to deliver returns for our investors. These are the real struggles, the real victories, and the real stories of asset management. Welcome back to another episode of True Multifamily. I'm here with Sandia Sasadri today. She's got an excellent, excellent story about her first unit, her first multi, 86 units. We're going to talk about the realities of asset management as we do on this show. Sandia, welcome, welcome, welcome. So glad to see you here. Thank you so much for having me here, Justin. I'm very excited to share my story and hopefully help the listeners realize that not everything is a perfect fairy tale ending. Uh, there are some challenges before you get to that fairy tale ending. That's absolutely right. And uh, challenges before you get to the fairy tale middle or beginning sometimes as well. And so, yeah, yeah it's, uh, it can be tough as we know. Uh, but let's start because you said your first deal is this 86 unit. So talk to me. Let's give our listeners a little bit of a background about you and how you got to be your first deal being an 86 unit property. Awesome. So my background was just like everyone is taught. Traditionally, you go to school, you get a job. And so mine happened to be in electrical engineering. And a few years after that, I got a business education as well, played the stock market for a while. And then in terms of lifestyle, I realized that I wanted to do something that produced a passive income and which also had something to do with real estate, but was afraid to go the single family route because I didn't want to self-manage and I didn't know enough about fixing problems and didn't want to get a call about, you know, a leak of a toilet in the middle of my Thanksgiving dinner. So when I heard about multifamily from a friend and the fact that if you buy a large enough property, you can have third-party property management to take care of the day-to-day happenings and you just have to kind of oversee it, um, it was very appealing. So I joined a mentoring group because I'm based in Dallas and that's where I want all my deals to be. So I picked a mentoring group that also had a large presence here and uh, networked with a bunch of people, invested in a few deals passively, found my future partners that way. And then we got in on this deal. It was listed uh, in the market by a popular brokerage here, Marcus and Millichap, uh, went after that deal, underwrote it, et cetera, and won. So here we are, we've got this deal. Now we got to execute on the business plan because we've got all these passive investors uh, expecting us to return their money and make some money like we promised in of course. our course. So let's talk about that, the setup a little bit there. Um, you, I, I love that you very quickly were like, no, single family is not for me. You know, there's all these great benefits of multifamily. Um, but you said you invested passively first, right? Mm-hmm. So was that to learn the business? Was that the whole goal was like 
you knew you wanted to get into this actively. So let's learn about it passively first. Yeah. So now I have all the textbook and video knowledge, but I'm not quite ready to take other people's money and do it myself as being new to real estate. So when I invested passively, it was my way of learning the business and looking over someone's shoulder and being a very active passive investor, if you want to call it that. So the minute I invested in a passive deal, I went to the property and I asked the a syndicator to show me around, tell me what their business plan was. And then I, every time I drive by there to go to my own property now, I do stop by and visit my passive properties as well. And then I ask questions on all the monthly reports. And I think the best thing I got out of it is to know what I like and what I don't like about uh, different ways of running a property or running a deal. So I took all the things I liked from different sponsors, made sure I put that in my monthly reports mm. when I talk to investors, et cetera. So, so it's smart. an excellent way to learn without taking on all the risks yourself. That's what I love about passive investing. Yeah, that's really, really smart. Um, I love that. So how many deals and how many sponsors? I'm actually in 15 deals. 15, 15 deals, look at over you. Over 3,500 doors. I still invest passively even though I've done the active side just because of the freedom of time that it gives you. Um, and the depreciation and other tax benefits. Of course. Uh, and when I take over a deal, I really give it my all. So um, I feel like the first three to six months, I want to be boots on the ground, staying there on site, et cetera. So I don't want to have five deals going on simultaneously as new deals because the first 30, 60, 90 days taking over a property uh, and stabilizing it is very, very important. So I take it one at a time. So you're you're speaking about this at like, like uh you know, as the active, but you're, you're speaking about properties that you're a passive investor on. Is that correct? So, but you're still actively involved in, in boots on the ground. Is this a formal role? Is this something that you have negotiated with a sponsor or your sponsor is just very open to having the LPs come in and, and see what's happening? No, when I, I was talking about active deals, so okay. if I have an active deal, um, I want to give it, babysit it and take care of it. So I don't want to have too many active deals, which is why I invest also passively. And gotcha. no, I don't do as much work on the passive deals, but I can get involved enough to see what is happening. Like in one particular deal I'm passive on, they're going to replace a chiller system and I've never seen that happen. So I'm going to get more, like I'm actually going to show up when they do that, yeah. and the vendors kind of thing. So anytime something interesting is going on that I haven't been exposed to, I'm going to go there and I'm going to find I out more. That. I it's love that. And that's, you know, some sponsors I think are, um, hold that close to the vest and, you know, don't necessarily want their LPs all up in, in the business and all that. But uh, we're the same way when we, when we do a deal, um, we invite all the investors out to, to an open house, not long after we close it, like, Hey, come, come see the before, right. Come see what this place looks at now and come by anytime, you know, every time we go to the, the property, come on with us and, uh, you know, see how this thing evolves over time. So, I think that's a sign of a good uh, sponsor as well as someone that's that's open. You know, if I'm going to take your money, then yeah, you should be able to come come check it out, see what's happening anytime you want. So yeah. that, that's great. So I love that you took you're taking all you know the different sponsors and and how they're reporting to you and how they're operating and you're folding that into to your own deal. So uh, really really nice and and I think that's a really great way for people to get started uh, as you know, being being their own operators. So for your 86 unit, let's talk about that. Did you uh, syndicate that? Did you, you know, what's the, what's the price range? What, tell me a little bit more about the deal. 
We syndicated the deal, me and two other partners who had the experience and the resume to win the deal um, and to be able to raise more capital than I did as a first uh, first timer. Uh, the deal was uh, $6.75 million. Uh, we ended up getting like 80% uh, LTV, which is kind of ridiculous. So it was well over 5 million we got uh, as far as the loan amount itself. We still raised over 2 million for that deal. And so we had a lot of money uh, left for doing our CapEx uh, projects, et cetera. This was about 14 months ago um, in an area called Cleburne, which is about 30 miles south of Fort Worth um, and from Dallas. Uh, that's not very far from the center of a lot of things going on. Uh, so of course we did our market study, et cetera, to be able to justify the rent bumps and so on in this uh, property. Okay, great. So, so you've got, um, this is your first solo, uh, tell me, you know, you said you mentioned CapEx. So tell me about sort of the planning before you buy. Like, are you, I know you're hands-on. So you got Gantt charge, you got scopes of work. What's what's the planning process like? So this was listed by the broker. So of course you read their OM and you filter through it and you say what's realistic, et cetera. And, um, I thought all M&M uh, offering memorandums were 100% true. And, and the rose Well, you still have to, you know, remove those rose colored lenses a little bit <laughs> and then do a reality check for yourself and say, is this really possible? So one of the biggest things in the business plan was that the leasing office was occupied by this uh, two-story, one-and-a-half bath, two-bedroom condo. So our property has condos on one side and uh, apartments on the other. And so this was this condo was definitely the one with the largest amount of rent. And that was being lost because of uh, the leasing office being housed there. So moving that was one of the first things we wanted to do. We discovered that in the laundry center, there was uh, half of it was full of the laundry machines and the rest of the area was sort of available. So we built a strong reinforced wall there and then used that other half to be our new leasing office, which was definitely a lot smaller than the existing one, but it was still plenty of space. It already had the bathroom connections to have a, a toilet, et cetera, in there. Uh, so that's what the, we did because instantly that gave us over $1,200 a month in uh, revenue, which is, you know, annualized 14 plus K, um, yeah. and, you know, it makes a nice impact on your NOI. So that was the I first thing. The second thing was there were several units, half of it was uh, like all bills paid and the other half was not. And we decided to go with actually everything all bills paid. So we converted all the units because we had uh, some about maybe a eight or 10 tenants who were paid by a government system, not exactly section eight, but something similar to where they all liked the idea of knowing what their bill was going to be and just have one check. So we did the all bills paid conversion of all of the units. So I think right now out of 86, there may be two or three that are straggling, but everything is converted. So one of the things for that was to do something to reduce your utility costs. So the water conservation program was one of the first things we did. Uh, to you know, have the low flow toilets, uh, faucets, and shower heads. So that instantly gets you a nice impact to your NOI by reducing that expense. I've got two uh, questions about that before yeah. we move forward. Um, sure. I want to catch you before we move on to the next topic, but uh, okay, why go to all bills paid? It was going to differentiate us from the rest of the market. And uh, it's actually helped us even now through COVID to be able to attract tenants who want to know that this is the most I'll ever have to pay and this covers all my bills. Because in Texas, especially in the summer, your utility bills can be pretty high. So if there is a way to reduce that, that uh, actually helps you uh, stand out from the rest of the crowd. Okay, so awesome. The so, so the way it looks is like rent is X 
and rent would normally be X, but now it's X plus some number that's going to cover all their utilities. And so that's basically a cap there. So you're saying, um, yeah, it's higher. So if I look at a two bedroom for you versus a two bedroom down the street, your number is going to be higher, but that includes all utilities. Is that, that, do I have that right? Okay. Yeah. So what happens then for, you know, if they're running the water all day long or they've got, it's Texas, right? They got the windows open and the air running. Like what that extra cost is on you. Is that correct? That's correct. So we, you know, we definitely have the leasing manager pretty frequently going around and looking at the property and we monitor the bills. We monitor the trends. So we know how much it needs to be. And so we certainly let the tenants know if there is such a problem. We haven't had a huge problem with that. Tenants don't just run the water or things like that. And they like the air conditioning. People don't typically leave their windows and doors open anyway. Yeah, that uh, it's makes not, sense. At least that's how we are in my house. We either is this, a, outside or is this yeah. like a, a B property? I would say it's more of a C plus that we're okay. trying to make it look like a B minus. Got it. Um, the location is nice, uh, but mm-hmm. the property is 60s built. So it's definitely a C in that okay. sense. Got but it. we're making it nice. Was, so it's the tenants, yeah. uh, how they, we, we have some all utilities paid properties and we actually have a cap. So mm-hmm. we'll call it I don't know, $110 or something. So normally it's well below, but if they happen to have a month where they just let the water run or something, then we'll bill them right. for the overage on the cap. That's uh, definitely makes sense. Yeah. To do that. So, so then you went in and so, but, but the flip side to that is anything below that number you save. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So now you're coming in with the, the water savings plan, which mm-hmm ton of sense. Yeah. Tell us about that a little bit. Yeah. So the water conservation plan, we got an uh, estimate from SAS and uh, we used these Niagara low flow toilets. They gave us an estimate and they actually beat that uh, at the end to where I think we were uh, promoted in several places as their, you know, showcase product to say, look what we did for this uh, uh, apartment complex and look how much money we saved them. So that was a very successful and necessary uh, measure to do. The other one we did was uh, switch over all the lighting to LED lights. Uh, so we again got multiple bids and uh, got that savings done pretty quickly. And again, we saw a reduction in our uh, electricity uh, bills. Um, so the, the challenges in all of this was that because we're Cleburne and so we're not exactly Dallas or Fort Worth, uh, sometimes contractors are hesitant to come out there just because they're like, oh, it's way out there. I'm like, it's 30 minutes from Fort Worth. Can't be that far. Yeah. That was definitely one of the challenges was getting contractors out there to come and give us bids and then to get them to show up to finish the work. You know, they would do like 70 or 80 percent and then the last 20 percent would just drag on. And you don't know that. Yeah. Like, well, we got to come there just for a couple of hours of work. It's not really worth it. I've got all my crew here versus, you know, if you were next door in a place like Fort Worth, they could just come in between for a couple of hours and finish right. your job. So I would say that was our biggest hassle is getting contractors out there and getting them to finish the job and coming back for those uh, final little touch-ups kind of uh, small jobs to finish up, especially once you pay them. It's very hard to get them to come back. Yes, (laughs) absolutely. So what's the lesson there? I mean, do you, do you pay, when do you pay them? Um, We usually pay them at the very end after the job is done, but then they're like, well, we finished the job. Like, no, there's still this much left. So your property management company has to be uh, pretty tough Mm -hmm. on them and uh, maybe hold on to say 10% or 20% of the bill. And that way they know that they need to come back and finish their touch-ups or whatever is left behind to uh, get yeah. paid for it. Done yeah. to you does not equal done to me in most exactly. cases, right? <laughs> yeah, your QC and my QC may vary a little bit. So. Exactly, 
Exactly. Okay. Um, that's, uh, that's definitely leads into, I think, what you're going to tell us about, which is one of the big challenges on this property, which is, you know, scheduling, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Scheduling vendors was definitely the biggest hassle, I would say, of everything. Even though we had great business plans and we were hoping to complete, for example, the office move uh, within a certain amount of time, we got into the holidays and uh, everything took just longer for people to show up and finish the job. So it took us almost six months to get that done versus I was hoping within three months we would get done with it. But just getting plans, getting estimates, uh, approval of the plan, uh, getting uh, the job executed just took a while. And then once we got it, you know, the actual move also took a little bit longer than we would have liked. Um, And then the signage and everything else to go with it so that now we're redirecting all traffic instead of this prominent location right up front when you drive there instead uh, to this, you have to go inside the courtyard of our apartment complex to the back where the laundry room is located and that's where the leasing office is. So we had to order huge signage and arrows and everything. So now it's all very clear where the leasing office is, but that even those little hassles of signage, sometimes our leasing manager would go and stand out where the old uh, office used to be and then mark on that door, okay, this is no longer an office that someone is actually living here. So don't go knocking this door hoping for, you know. Oh my goodness. Yeah, no, signage is one of those things that you don't really think about until you're standing there and you're like, oh, wait a minute, how how do I find this? Yeah, Um, yeah, we just invested uh, $40,000 in the signage at at one of our properties, you know, a nice monument sign to attract the attention from the road, as you said, but you're winding through, I need an arrow pointing this way and an arrow pointing that way and, you know, clear clear building numbers and and all of that. So it's it's absolutely something that you've got to factor. Um, But so talk to me then about, you know, sort of lessons learned from struggling with, you know, we wanted to be three months, we wanted to be six months, like on the next project, how, how do you get around that? And how do you make adjustments to your plan? I think like having the property manager uh, team on board with this and to incentivize them to say, if we get this done within this day, like 90 days or whatever the target days, there's a little incentive for you guys. If you're moved, this is what I would redo. If I could go back, do a nice control Z and start over, I would approve the contractors itself faster. I wouldn't quibble about the last few bucks. I would just go with, okay, between these three contractors, who's got the experience, who's got the resume that I like, and I would decide that a little faster. And I would say, we want to get this done by this day. So same with the contractor. It's like, you know, you're giving me a bid for this much. I'll actually pay you a little bit extra if you finish by this day. And the same with my leasing staff and maintenance staff. If you can coordinate this better and have this completely moved out, we'll get it done. But we were taking over a property with new property management companies. So just the adjustment period took a while. So we couldn't immediately start and execute this. The first part was just to make the tenants okay and happy and uh, get used to the new team and go through all the maintenance stuff. There was just such a big mess. They had left so many things in there to organize that room, et cetera. All of that took a while. So settling down took a while, but in terms of the first thing you should be doing is, yeah, let's get this revenue for this leasing office because here we are losing a potential 1200 plus per month uh, because of this. So I think I would put additional incentives to those budgets because even if I could get three extra months of rent, you know, the incentive would easily be way less than that. And I love the way you're thinking about that. And that's absolutely right. You know, if you had done that leasing office move three months earlier and you're saying $1,200 mm-hmm. in rent coming in, well, you've got $3,600 to play with there, right? Yeah. So you, you can pay the contractor a little bit more. You can pay to have that extra guy on staff to haul the trash out of there or whatever. Like exactly. it's worth time, mm-hmm. I, I think is the mo- one of the most underrated aspects uh, of this in that, 
the the speed of your business plan implementation is absolutely key because you don't ever get that rent back that month August of last year's you know rent comes and goes if you don't have a tenant in there you're never getting that money back again um, so it could be worth to to pay someone to to get that done a lot faster yeah absolutely agree and I love the plan to incentivize your property manager as well that's um, not something that I heard but to to help facilitate this and like yeah let's move a little bit yeah. um, and then paying vendors, uh, paying vendors a little bit more. So it's so important to think about, you know, we're not only hiring the cheapest because of course we want to save money and we have so much that we're going to do. And we know there's going to be overages on everything. So if I can save a little money on this guy, I'm happy to do that. But the reality is if he takes an extra two weeks to get the job done, I haven't saved anything. And I've probably lost a little bit more than I could have paid the guy that's more prepared that can come in and knock this job out a lot quicker. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, that, that's great. So, so now um, what's, what's next? Are you buying more? Are you, how are you asset managing this one while looking and you're involved in so many projects right now? You know, what, where, where are you right now? Um, I'm still actively underwriting tons of deals, uh, placing offers. We placed two offers yesterday, a couple of offers mm-hmm. the previous week, et cetera. I got into best and final, but then there's people with preemptive strikes or coming in way over whisper because they need a closing by December 20. Uh, 20. And so we got beaten that way, but I'm still sticking with my principles. It's like, okay, I can't go half a million more. Could I go 50 K more? Probably, but I'm not going to go half a million more in this uncertain time, depending on how this election pans out, et cetera, for next year, because I don't know what this eviction moratorium and lack of uh, losing collections, et cetera, is going to do. So there's only so much of a chance I can take when it's other people's money. Um, yep. And not all passive investors are going to be happy if your cash flow is significantly less than what you promised, because it's also about building a reputation. But yes, I'm very actively still underwriting deals with differences of partners. I'm part of a larger mentoring group. So there's always people looking for someone who's in Dallas where a lot of the deals are being done. So it's quite easy to find partners from out of state who want to boots on the ground, who's very active with managing like I am. But we did a couple of other things with that property as well. And one of them is uh, we did privacy fences. So these townhomes are actually adjacent to a residential street, which is really nice. And it feels like homes. So these townhomes almost don't feel like they're part of our apartment complex in a way. And so when we built privacy fences in there, um, people could let out their pet or uh, their little kid, and it just had a much more home feel to it. And we were able to get a rent bump for it as well. So, do you uh, know that? Do you know the numbers offhand on that? What does it cost to build, and what's the rent bump you can get? Around a thousand dollars is what it costs, and uh, you get anywhere from thirty-five to fifty-dollar rent bumps. So, on existing tenants, yeah, it easily pays for itself. So, uh, it's another way to really boost your NOI. Uh, is so, all asking- things being equal, unit condition, and all that one that has a fence, one doesn't, I can get 30 to $50 more. That's right. Yeah. And it feels like one of the homes nearby. And so there's this residential seat with all these homes and then there's nice green belt behind it. So it just uh, fits very nicely into that plan. And then last but not the least, I think we all do this is interior upgrades. So always these units were classic, a lot of them. And so we went in, but we didn't just do a sweeping upgrade and say, let's go spend six, $7,000 upgrading everything. Let's be selective. So if the appliance is white on white and it's not broken, dinged, and it works fine, let's leave it there. But then let's make sure we do always the paint, the flooring, and the fixtures. Those are the things that pop when a tenant walks in and thinks, oh, this looks so nice and new and bright. So you can get your $7,500 or $150 rent bump, depending on where you're at, 
with the rent um, based on that. So again, we worked with our property management uh, team to make sure what, what things do uh, the tenants find attractive that they'll pay this much more for. We wanna get to this pro forma rent, tell us what we have to do, what's the least we can do to get the maximum rent bump. And again, we went with neutral themes like white subway tiles instead of a nice shiny little backsplash of tiles that look really attractive, but are trendy. And then they may be out of style in a couple of years. You know, We went mm -hmm. with more classic, clean lines, simple finishes uh, that could still be considered new and updated. You know, we redid just the cabinet doors instead of replacing cabinets. Uh, the countertops, you know, this really didn't lend itself to fancy granite. So unless we got a really good deal on granite, you could just, uh, if the countertops look fine, leave it as it is. So in terms of interior upgrades, again, be very selective. Uh, you don't have to go in there with a sweeping change like this is a class A plus in a nice location. You know, just no, you do the upgrades that make sense for the property property in the market, right? Mm -hmm. So if every other, you know, you said $1,200 for, for that unit. If every other $1,200 unit has granite, well, you probably got to do granite. But if every $1,200 has, you know, uh, not not so nice, you can bring your property and your unit condition up to something that can be attractive inside without breaking the bank. And so I love that you're focusing on what tenants really respond to in that market, which is the, the paint and the fixtures and the flooring. Um, and, and we'll see that too. And so, you know, it, it really depends. Every property is a little different and because it's in the market. And so how do you figure out like, what, what sort of um, competitive analysis do you do? Like, do you tour your, your competitors, figure out what, what fixtures they're putting in? Talk to me about that process a little bit. So first, of course, you trust the broker's OM and sure. you make a list of your own comps. And then when you drive by you or you look at it on a Google map, you realize, oh, maybe I should include these additional properties as well. Or maybe from the map itself, you realize, oh, this is on the other side of the highway or this is too far for it to be a fair comp. Or this is not the same class and type of property for it to be a fair comp. So you, you definitely do all that up front and then you make a list. You have the same checklist, you know, these are the, I take a sheet with me every time I go or I take it in my notes and my phone. But the things you want to do is you want to actually tour the comps physically. You want to see if one comp has a pool and really nice amenities and yours is more of a just plain Jane kind of apartment. You want to know the difference. You want to note that because those people might be willing to pay a little more because they have access to a pool or a park or whatever else. So a fair comp is one which is really located uh, within a one mile radius, ideally as close as possible to your subject comp and has similar amenities and also compare the square footage. Like you may call this a two bedroom and that a two bedroom, but one might be significantly smaller than the other, right? So it's not just price per square foot, it's also the feel of the room when you walk in. I mean, maybe it was really intended to be a one bedroom with a little study and they're now calling it a two bedroom. It's not really apples to apples comparison. So that- 100%. And that's why you're getting a little less for it here. So you can't really bump it up because a two bedroom next door is getting this much more. So on, until you visit the property, you won't know. So in some cases I go in and I say, look, I'm doing a market survey. There are some people looking to purchase this property next door. So can you give me some information? Um, in other cases I say, okay, my niece is gonna move in here and I really wanna know if she can live in this property, can you show me? And- uh, How do you make the distinction? Yeah. What makes you decide to say one or the other? Um, I just think like when I go in there, it's an instinct. I feel like what are the odds that she's going to show me inside and what story is she going to be believing in me? So it's sort mm -hmm. of like I look for the vibes I get okay. when I go in, yeah. how friendly and welcoming they are versus I'm only going to waste time on you if you're a prospective tenant versus I'll help you anyway because it's not as crowded or whatever yeah. uh, I feel at that time when I, I walk. Got it. 
Yeah, we, we've seen both and it's hard to, you know, sometimes it's just easier to be like, hey, you know, yeah, we're we're buying this property or we're on the property down the road. I'm I'm curious what you guys are doing. Yeah. Most of the time they don't care. We had one just gave us the keys. She's like, yeah, there's a few vacants down there. Here's a list. Here's the keys. Go go look yeah. at whatever you want to look at, you know, but others are much more protective. of it. Yeah. And it also depends on the comp itself. But I think until you actually visit and feel the comps and you actually walk the interiors and see if the floorboards are flat mm -hmm. and not bowed and all of that kind of stuff, it's very hard to imagine a comp just from online tours. So important to actually walk and actually get out there. I 100% mm -hmm. agree because uh, there's not enough that you can get from a, even a you know 3D virtual tours or videos. You just don't have the same feel. You don't have this, there could be, you know, crime, you know, who knows what's going on the next block over, but you can see it out the window, you know, that, that all impacts everything. So uh, absolutely 100% agree with you on, on walking the units and the property to figure out, you know, what, what they're offering, so. And that's why it takes so much time. And that's why, you know, you get feel for things like cars in the parking lot during the daytime. You know, yeah. I know a lot of people work remotely, but who is this uh, client base here? And so does it make sense for so many cars to be in the parking lot during the day, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you it's ask a really yourself, good indicator. I wonder how that's changed over the last few months with, with COVID. Right. Um, you know, I guess naturally it makes sense that people are home right now. Uh, but that used to be a great indicator, like 10 a.m. on a Tuesday, I'm at my property uh, I want it to be pretty empty, right? Because mm -hmm. I want people to be at work. Yeah. Um, but nowadays, uh, that might be harder to to judge with everyone working from home. Uh, but you should know. You should know where your tenants work as well, right? They you you kind of know if it's a blue collar job or or whatnot, where they probably don't. You know, some tenants don't have the luxury of being able to work from home, and so the, they need to be out working anyway. Um, all right. This is this has been a really so many great uh, nuggets in here, guys. If you have not. Um, I would go back and listen. I have to go back and listen because there, there's so many good things that, that you mentioned, you know, all surrounding just moving quickly on your business plan and not letting that time go by, um, do the water savings, you know, really work, uh, paying a contract a little bit more is okay because if you're, if they're going to be able to deliver on your, your schedule. So um, really amazing feedback. I love the privacy fence. <laughs> I love everything you said top to bottom. Um, this has been a really great interview with, with so many actionable pieces of information on how people can uh, add value to, to their own properties. So give us, I'll give you a minute to promote, you know, your company, your website, and, and tell everyone how they can find out more about you. My website is multifamilyforyou.com, where the four is a number four and the U is Y-O-U spelled out. So multifamilyforyou.com. So if you visit my website and provide your email address, I can provide you with a passive investors checklist to vet a sponsor or sponsorship team. Because um, at least for me, I learned the business by passively investing. And I think that the sponsorship team is the number one criteria before you invest in a deal. So their experience, how well they work together, their past track record, uh, attention to detail, um, not having too many deals at once to where they can't really pay attention to the deal. There are so many things to watch out for. And also whether the deal is structured to help you the passive investor or is it much more in favor of the sponsors itself right whether that's acquisition fees or the waterfall split at the back end or fees every time they do something like a disposition fee refinance fee etc cetera, etc cetera. it's important to be aware of it and also the psa itself i recommend folks to always have a lawyer look over it um, in terms of uh, before you invest in the deal 
uh, itself because sometimes even things like depreciation that you might be counting on is again more in favor of the sponsorship team than yourself. So um, I am very much an advocate for the passive investor. So if you'd like the checklist, visit my website to learn more. Awesome. Multifamily four, number four, Y-O-U.com. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I definitely appreciate it. Um, I hope you all visit that website. That is such an amazing offer as well as a passive investor, even as an active investor, by the way, you should Mm -hmm. still download that so that you know what your passive investors might be looking for when they download that file. And uh, you want to be able to stand up and be able to answer all those questions and be able to to show yourself as a a true uh, operator that, that has integrity. Thank you so much. If, uh, if anyone wants to hear for, more from you, multifamily4u.com. Um, guys, please leave us a rating and review. I hope you enjoyed this episode and we will see you next time. Hey, Justin, I actually meant to say uh, PPM, not PSA. PSA is for us when we buy it from the for a seller. Uh, PPM is a document that you as a passive investor will be looking over and signing uh, to have your formal agreement between you, the passive investor, and the Uh, deal sponsor on the terms that apply to your deal and the risks. And so definitely get that looked over by a lawyer. Absolutely. So the the PPM is going to outline all the details of the deal and it's going to have that depreciation that you just mentioned, who gets what and how it's all broken out. Uh, So absolutely take a look at the the PPM. Um, But I was going along with you because I actually don't, I don't think it's a bad idea. If they want to look at the PSA, we've shared that with some investors as well who have asked for the same. So if you want to see the the PSA is a purchase and sale agreement between the buying entity and the seller. And uh, hey, that's that's not bad information to have either. So uh, thanks for clarifying that for us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode. Check out our website at truemultifamily.show. And if you have an amazing story to tell, share it on our Facebook community, and you might just be the next guest on the show. We're also on all other social networks. Just search True Multifamily. I'm really, really proud to have this show produced by our company, On Air Brands. Check us out at onairbrands.com. We also have an incredible, unique podcasting event that we would love for you to be a part of. Check that out at podmax.co.